0: is the executive director of Sisters in Crime, and I am really delighted to welcome Michelle Thalkoff to the podcast today. Michelle is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania Columbia Law School and the University of Iowa Writers Workshop. She's the author of How to Act for the End of the World, which came out in 2020, as well as Playlist for the Dead, which was an NPR great read of 2015, Pushing Perfect, and Questions I Want to Ask You. She lives in Chicago, that great city of writers. (laughs) Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank
1: you so much. It's wonderful to be here.
0: Well, I'm going to start this conversation where I always start conversations. When did you say to yourself, I want to write a book?
1: I wish that were an easier question to answer. I, I have very specific memories of trying to write novels as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, at the time we didn't have the phrase fan fiction in our lexicon in the same way, but I would say what I was really doing is trying to rewrite books whose endings I didn't like. <laughs> so I thought, I thought I was doing something new, you know, but what I was really doing is sort of choosing these books, trying to imagine a slightly different version of it where I could redirect it the way that I wanted to, mm-hmm. um, And I never actually managed to pull that off. I never wrote a novel as a kid or anything, but I think that's where the idea popped into my brain, but it didn't come back again for a really long time because I took sort of what I would call the practical detour. Um, Mm -hmm. And I decided that writing was not something that was going to be available to me. Um, I had this idea that you sort of had to be a genius. It had to come very naturally. It had to become very fast. Mm -hmm. And because I wasn't that person, I needed a more, Appropriate and practical life to lead, and yeah, you know, that just wasn't going to be for me. Um, and it took a really long time to get over that way of thinking and start thinking about writing again in a serious way. And so, to to kind of come back around to the the question, I would say I really started to take my own writing seriously when I went back to grad school, um, to and I started Iowa? thinking to Iowa. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I started thinking I really wanted to write before that, obviously, because that's what prompts you to go. But, um, but it wasn't until I was there that I started to believe that I could write a book. Like I started to have faith in the idea that this was something in range for me, which I I hadn't really believed before. And I, I made that my goal.
0: So so there's so much to unpack there because I, I I suspect that there are a lot of people who are listening to this, who are going to identify with that mental game we play with ourselves where, Oh, I can't do this. So I'm not going to, or, Nobody tells you it's as hard as it is. So you think because it's difficult for you, you're doing it wrong. Yes, <laughs> it's true. Um, so the leap to Iowa is a big leap, though. I mean, getting into yes. that program <laughs> is not a. a there were definitely <laughs> some. There were some interim steps along the way, for sure. Did you take other craft classes, or how did you sort of build up to saying, "All right, I really want to do this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pursue this in a graduate." So
1: I had taken classes in college. You know, I I was an English major. I took some creative writing classes, but at my university, it was really hard to get into them and they were very competitive. And my, um, the one teacher I managed to have was just not super encouraging. I think partly because they were over-enrolled, you know, they were sort of looking to discourage in the same way that I think publishing is sort of looks to discourage a lot of the books that come through just because there's so many, you know, (laughs) um, and in a weird way, it was helpful to get used to that mindset very young, you know, but she discouraged me enough that I had to take a break. You know, I, I took a break from writing for a long time. Um, and it wasn't until I was in law school and I was, I was unhappy. I mean, there were a lot of things about law that I loved and there were a lot of things about law school that I loved. Um, but I, I think I had some misconceptions about that field going in. I mean, there's a common thread for me about things I didn't know that I learned on the way, you know, um, and having to recalibrate. So I had to kind of recalibrate my approach to law school while I was there. um, And I realized that I had not been attentive to my creative side and it was making me unhappy. Um, Mm -hmm. And now I would describe that. And I describe this to my law students as expecting law school to be everything to me. Um, which is not reasonable, right? My creative life had to live outside of that space. Um, But one thing I did for myself that was really helpful while I was in school was I got them to let me take a creative writing class for credit. Um, I made a whole pitch about, you know, telling stories to juries and stuff, and they went for it. So I took a fantastic creative writing class at the end of law school that was very encouraging. My professor was very welcoming and helpful. Um, And I took that with me when I went into practice so that a couple of years into practice, when I started again getting frustrated with some of these choices that I was making and things that I was learning, um, I knew that the answer was to start writing again. And so I started mm-hmm. taking creative writing classes at night while I was practicing. And that's where I ran into a professor who I, I he knows, I think I've thanked him enough, um, named Doug Dorst, who's a wonderful guy who had gone to law school and then gone to Iowa. And he was really the first person who sat me down and said um when he when he heard me sort of do that i'm not a genius i don't have the lightning bolt thing he was like you're thinking about this wrong he's like you're thinking about this like it's magic you're a lawyer you need to think about this like work he was like think about all the things you didn't know before you went to law school and how much time it took you to figure that out the hours that you put in to get good at what you do he's like writing is a job you put in the time he said obviously you need you need something right it can't come from nowhere but he's like, this whole idea of the lightning bolt of genius, you got to let that go. And you've got to, you got to do some work. And he helped me so much. And he helped me get my first publication. And he was very encouraging as I took more classes and started thinking about leaving practice and going back to study writing full time.
0: So um, what a gift it is to meet somebody when, especially when you're receptive to hearing what He's saying so that, you know you're still not in that no 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 wait mm-hmm. I need to have the lightning bolt you're willing it is to so experience. much a
1: confluence of of timing and person right getting yes. that that blend you know getting that that connection at the at the right time it's so important such a
0: gift too yeah absolutely um so talk to me about as you're going to taking these classes and probably short story classes and other yep. things how did you start to develop what you wanted to write? Because you, you, you're, you write right now in um, YA fiction. We're going to talk about what you write and see if there's other things in the offing, but how did you sort of figure out what you wanted to write?
1: You know, that's, I feel like that's a lifelong process and I'm still in it, right? Um, And I've written a lot of different kinds of things and I I still want to write a lot of different kinds of things. And so um, I've, I think YA is is in some ways a temporary space for me, but not in a bad way. And I still have mm-hmm. a lot of things I want to do in that space, but it did take a while to get there. Um, I remember having this idea years ago that I would write all sorts of things in different genres and like be the person who bounced from genre to genre. And I, I kind of get that publishing isn't necessarily as friendly to that as it might be, but I'm seeing more of that now. Um, and I like it. I like the idea of that kind of movement. But, um, for me, i I started writing short stories because that's what people write when they're studying, right? And I wrote a lot mm-hmm. of short stories while I was taking classes and writing short stories. and um, and I read a lot of them, and I enjoyed it. Um, but I am a like a voracious reader of novels. Um mm-hmm. that is just my love. I, I love reading books. i I read very fast and very poorly. (laughs) And so I kind of have to read a lot to retain things. I have to reread things. Um, But novels are my happy place. Novels are what I love. And so one of the really nerdy things I did when I went to grad school was I was very anxious because again, so practical, right? I was very anxious about wasting time. Um, And I had come from law firm practice where I build every minute. I build in six minute increments, you know, every, every piece of work I did, was account, I was accountable to somebody. And I decided at least in my first year of grad school that I was going to be accountable to myself. So I, um, I build my time in grad school. I mean, I didn't use six minute increments. I was much more flexible. Um, but I, I build my time and I had a lot of things that I considered billable, um, that which, and and what that meant to me was that I was doing something that was valuable in service of my writing career. Mm-hmm. And so there were lists of things I had that were billable, but among them were reading projects and kind of note-taking projects um, to try to study how to do different things. So I, and I took classes, not just in short story workshops, but also novel writing workshops. They offered those, which was fantastic. Um, and I studied with Elizabeth McCracken. I took two novel writing workshops with her, and she is the most amazing teacher and writer and teacher and writer. She's incredible. She's incredible. Um, and so I really devoted special time to studying novels and and how they work and how they're structured and how you try to go about writing them. And, um, and I, I was, I gave myself the task of coming up with a novel topic or concept sometime during that first year that I could start writing during the second year, um, and that was when I started trying to think about the shape of projects in a book shape and not in a story shape, if that makes sense.
0: hmm Well, yeah, because it's it's. I understand why they teach us how to write short stories and and you know because it's the entire you know arc and all that sort of thing. But it's writing a novel is a completely different skill set, and it's totally. Not, some people can do both but some people can't some people are novelists some people are short story writers um so what a gift to be able to to learn how to write a novel from somebody who's a gifted novelist oh, and yeah. a good teacher <laughs> absolutely um, yeah. yeah and so talk to me about the exploration of of you know um of genre and of of sort of figuring out how, what the stories you wanted to tell were And then I want to talk about exploring other things as well. Um, sure. yeah, we, we talked about this a little bit before we got on, uh, turned on the recorder. Uh, you know, YA is a really interesting um, way of, of building worlds, that are so less restrictive than they are in adult, and I'm air quoting that, um, fiction, in that it can be a combination of a lot of different things. And it's just, you know, you're setting up a world and people are exploring it and going into the world and then they're coming out and maybe revisiting if it's a series um, with such freedom and and you know it's it's it, in some ways that freedom would be daunting because you got to, you got it's a lot of work but it is um, a lot. yeah yeah, yeah. But, uh, so, so so yeah to 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 that
1: point i would say um the way that i like to think about it or the way that it's helpful to me to think about it is YA is a category rather than a genre, right? So it's a um, it's a very big umbrella to describe a lot of different types of writing. Um, and within that category, any number of genres exist, um, just like they do in adult, right? You have sort of like contemporary literary YA, you have YA mystery, you have YA thrillers, you have fantasy, you have science fiction, you have all those things. But the main difference to me, and I know this is shifting, but not quickly, and I'm happy for that, the genre boundaries in the adult world are very established, right? Everybody kind of knows what they are. They have rules that, you know, that people shop them around in their genre way. Um, And to move between those genres, um, even certain types of movement are quantified, right? We talk about slipstream fiction, we talk about speculative fiction, but even those have certain kind of boundaries that we expect Mm -hmm. to see. We try to write adult fiction that we don't have trouble shelving, right? And the shelves are all very distinct. In YA, they've only started making a few different shelves, right? And they're starting to make more. I don't want them to because one of the things I love about YA is how slippery those genre boundaries are right now. There is a lot of room to write in these interesting interstitial spaces where you don't have to categorize or quantify the genre or subgenre that you want your book to live in, you can just kind of live in that creative world, see what happens when it comes out. Um, and to backtrack, I would say, like I, I wish that for all writers in all ways while they're writing. It's more when you think about the business side of it. How am I going to yeah. market this book? How do I pitch it? How do I say what this book is in conversation with? Um, there, it just seems like YA still has a little more flexibility than adult literature does. Um, and I, I hope that YA stays flexible. I hope that adult fiction loosens up a little bit just so we have that space, that you know, extra room for creativity. But I understand also why those boundaries exist, right? I mean, these are businesses and there are marketing categories that are helpful. But I think people are so receptive to reading projects that are complicated and interesting and weird. And we've seen mm-hmm. that from YA. And as those YA readers grow up, they might have an expectation that they're going to have that fluidity. I think you had mentioned that when we were talking earlier, right? Like we are training kind of a generation of readers to look at genre a little bit differently. Be nice. If we could
0: carry that forward with them. Right. Right. It's so, again, so many things to talk about, but it's, it it's as a writer, that's the creativity. That's the craft. That's the artistry as a, author you do have to think about marketing and publishing and all the rest of it um but you need to you can make space or make uh, a pitch for what you want to do but it's it is challenging although i am heartened by the fact you know as we're recording this in early 2024 you know rachel house of hall and jess lowry both have ya Coming yep. out this year,
1: <laughs> so exciting!
0: Well, and Rachel's like going into fantasy. She was like a yeah. hardcore
1: mystery person who, all of a sudden, is writing what sounds like an absolutely incredible fantasy novel. Yes, yeah. So, like, um, there it there definitely feels like there's there's getting to be more room and there's getting to be a little bit more flexibility for people being able to jump between genre and category and all these things. And stay true to themselves. They're not making people pick new pen names for this or create a new yes. writerly persona. It's they're they're letting their brand be flexibility, which is right. wonderful.
0: And it could be because they both have strong platforms and they're well known writers and everything else that they're, they that people are willing to say. Of course, she's a brilliant writer. Let Rachel Household right. write what she wants to write. But I do think that that experimentation um, for the industry. Yeah, we all need to support it. And um mm-hmm. and I also think that it it offers opportunities um maybe to rethink some things or to to you know rediscover. And there's smaller presses that are willing to be a little bit mm-hmm. more uh fluid and interesting in the way they're thinking about things. But let's go back to craft for a second. You're in sure. Iowa, you're taking these classes, you're in grad school, it's a it's an intense program. Um uh and were they receptive to you writing what you wanted to write or were oh, they? Yeah. Did, OK, so they did. Yeah, the, the, I, to... I think
1: the, the, the reputation of the school and I think it's changed a lot over the years, too. But um, the reputation is being super like narrow and hardcore and everything is Raymond Carver is over. You know, yeah. um, everyone I knew there was open and flexible and into really very cool, weird stuff. Um, and we, everyone encouraged us to try whatever we wanted to try. It was like a safe place to do whatever you wanted. So I was writing some really weird little stories, you know, some of them totally realistic, some of them not realistic at all. Um, I wrote any range of protagonists from, you know, from young adult protagonists to adults, you know, people that I I felt like I understood very well people who I was learning about as I wrote them. It was very, very flexible. um, And it did, it felt very safe and people were super encouraging. And I think that the work that we've seen coming out of there in recent years, super interesting, complicated, weird stuff. um, And it's great, you know. I will say though that there, you know, there is still some genre snobbery, right? And the joke was always that um, when people, when my friends wanted to know, about like trends that were happening in the writing world, I was given reading assignments, you know? So I like read Twilight and reported back to the team, you know, like, and they were all like, (laughs) we're still reading Saul Bellow. And I'm like, sure, go read Saul Bellow. I'm gonna gonna read Twilight. We're gonna have a conversation after, you know? um, People wanted to know what was up, but like the engagement with contemporary literature was pretty limited, right? I would say Mm -hmm. it was narrow, it wasn't non-existent, but like, you know, there's always trendy writers that everyone's reading at the time. You know, when I was in grad school, everybody read like Lori Moore, George Saunders and, you know, Murakami, um, all of whom are writers I still love and will read anything they write at any time. Um, but they're so particular and they're so specific and good at what they do. They are not people like that for whom imitation would make sense, right? Like yeah. trying to write like any of them is not going to be the most helpful endeavor. You need to figure out your own kind of voice in that. And so there was a lot of room for figuring out your own thing.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because when you talk about imitation, that's such an important part of a writer's toolbox is Mm -hmm. to, you know, read a book to enjoy it and then reread it as a writer. and, And, or even if you don't enjoy it, sometimes that's more helpful, but to say, how is she using words like what why do I love this character so much when it takes this you know Mm -hmm. I mean what what's she doing that I can steal
1: (laughs) oh totally (laughs) yeah yeah
0: yeah Yeah.
1: I just think about the pieces of the the things I steal are smaller right like yeah it's it's more like how would you write I would want like a Laurie Moore sentence um like and a George Saunders concept and a Murakami mood, right? Yeah. Like, and how do I figure out how to steal those things and then turn them into like something I would do? Yeah, Turn them into yeah. my version of it, right? Like, yeah. um, and it's a, hard, it's a hard line to walk, but I think it's fun to come up with exercises to try to extract these pieces. You know, when I'm teaching, I'm always trying to think about like, how do we figure out like what to steal, how to steal it and how to use our theft responsibly? You know, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, not copy, but to, right. sti- to be inspired by. I mean, right, it's, right, yeah. That's the that's that's better Lego. <laughs> <point. laughs>
1: How do I take my inspiration from these things effectively?
0: Um, Well, and I think that the the authors that you've listed are authors. Authors, you know, they're 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 yes. Other writers will read them. I I, this past weekend I went to a John Singer Sargent exhibition and um one of the narratives about one of the paintings was that he was a painter's painter in that painters can look at him and say how does he do that yes. and and sort of have an extra depth mm-hmm. to the understanding of his work and i think that there are writers who writers will read because you 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 just marvel at what they're able to do mm-hmm. <laughs> um oh, it's and true. You need, yeah you need to read those, but you also need to read the stuff that's fun and that that you know sort of lights totally. you up a little bit. Oh yeah. And as you're being encouraged to write weird stories or to explore things, and you know, tell me about the freedom that that gave you as a as a writer. Not you know, just spending that time in grad school being brave and figuring and building confidence and, you know, being encouraged to explore and how important that was as your growth as a writer.
1: It was huge. A friend of mine from school were just talking about this and our experience. We took our very first workshop together um, and we took it with the director at the time, Frank Conroy, who was a tough cookie, right? He was sort of known for being very hard on people. He's very, what we call like a toolbox teacher. He's very specific Um, he's very sentence level, um, and he's extremely hard on his students, but he starts from a place of, um, he sort of opens his class and says like, you all belong here. You wouldn't be here if you didn't belong here. And I will tell you that none of us believe that. Um, and him saying it didn't help that much. It helped a little, it didn't help a lot. Um, but the, the imposter syndrome is very real and it does not leave quickly Mm -hmm. if ever. Right. Mm Um, But he basically tried to free us to do interesting things and to take risks and to accept what it meant for those risks to not pan out, right? So with the freedom to do whatever you want, sort of comes the responsibility of accepting feedback about how well you've succeeded in that mission, Mm -hmm. right? And so the big takeaways in grad school for me that don't work for everyone. And it's why these programs aren't necessarily for everyone. Um, I, I learned that it is in my best interest to take chances all the time, because, um, when you don't, you will submit work that you're not proud of. And when the critiques come, they will vindicate your feeling that you don't deserve this. Right. And that was sort of so in that first workshop, I, I was able to submit three things over the course of the semester, and I had three very disparate experiences. Um, and the first thing I turned in was something that wasn't really ready, and I kind of knew it, and I had run out of time because I had a deadline for another class. Um, and I turned in a story I wasn't particularly proud of, and my workshop was kind of a nightmare. People still talk about it. <laughs> like, he came in and rewrote the first page himself and explained like what a bad job I had done of constructing sentences and what it would take to make it better. It was actually incredibly helpful to me, right? To have someone view the sentences with that level of depth and perception and clarity. Um, But it was super harsh. And I knew that story was bad and spending a whole class period talking about how bad it was, was rough. But it also really helped in like kind of a band-aid ripping way because it was such a gift to hear people spend that kind of time on something. And I kind of felt guilty that that's what I had given them to spend their time on. And Mm -hmm. I resolved I was never going to do that again. So I never turned in another story that felt like that to me, that felt like it was half-baked and I wasn't proud of it. I really wanted to turn in stuff that was truer to the kind of writer I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wanted to have put in the effort. And so the second thing I turned in for him was a really, really wacky, non-realistic story. Um, You know, it had like separate sections It was, um, I would say, kind of like speculative-ish. And he's not a huge fan of that, and I knew it. But I had so much fun writing this story. It was like the most interesting thing I had done to that point. It was super weird. I was really excited about it. And he wasn't really having it. So his part of the workshop was tough, my professor. But the students were into it. And we had a really interesting conversation about genre and form and what it means to move away from realism. And Mm -hmm. it was, I wouldn't say it was like a a totally positive workshop, but people were engaging with my writing in such an interesting way. And I loved it. Um, And so when they had comments and critiques, I could hear it. I was Mm -hmm. happy to hear it because it was in service of making this weird thing that I did better and weirder and complete, you know, and then when I finally turned in something that was sort of like a a little bit weird and still a little bit more straightforward and very, I felt like very polished and they could see that. Mm-hmm. And that was like, I was like, okay, so I've progressed over the course of this semester and I've, I've shown some range. I've done things I'm proud of. I've done things I'm not proud of. I know how I want things to move going forward. That, I know a little long-winded
0: way of saying it, but like, no, I think oh, it's interesting to me. Yeah, and it, that sounds—that's a fascinating journey as well because you're building craft, but you're also building a muscle of how you want to be seen as a writer. Mm-hmm. You know, I—I I want to take this seriously. I want to put my best things out there, um, and I also, when you talked about turning in something that's not great and getting feedback that validates that it's not great and how that could spiral you, that resonated with me. I think mm-hmm. that we all, it's very scary to put your work out there. And, you know, I hope folks listening to this podcast over time hear that from different people. It's a brave thing to to put your work, your creative yep. output out there.
1: And feedback
0: is a gift.
1: And that's true of the time, no matter the quality or the tone of the feedback, right? Like, and that's something that I think writers, we have to remind ourselves of that constantly, you know, because there will be people who give us feedback that is not helpful, or that is mean-spirited, or that is difficult, or that seems to be reading something that's not what we're writing. And like, even that feedback, also a gift. Because our job as writers is to process all of that and to figure out whose, whose voices we value in creating our own work, right? What is helpful to us and what isn't? Mm -hmm. Um, And who are the people who are reading the things that we wanna be be writing, who can help us make those things better versus the people who either are not interested in what we're doing, good to know, or who would like us to be doing something different and would happily help steer us on that path. Also not helpful, even though those are well-meaning people who might love us and want our work to be something great, but maybe not the great that we want it to be. And learning who those people are and holding those readers close to you is such an important skill for a writer to have.
0: Yeah. And when in Iowa uh, were the or or other workshops you've participated in mm-hmm. was it the type of workshop where you don't defend or respond, you listen while you're being critiqued and then you can respond afterwards or was it live, you know, trying it's, to defend you know, your
1: work? It's interesting because I, I suspect this has probably changed over time. At the time that I was there, and in most of the classes that I've taken, um, they were uh, it's like you are the writer is a fly on the wall in the room. Um, there is no real opportunity for engagement. It is all about the privilege of hearing how people talk about your work as if you're not there. And I think the goal is to replicate the experience of sending your work out into the world where you're not there to participate in a conversation other people are having about it. That said, I think over time as a teacher, I've come to think that while there's some utility in that approach, there's maybe more in having some flexibility about how you run a workshop environment like that. So you know, there might be the occasional student who still wants no part of that conversation and is much more interested in observing um, as if they're not present. But I think for the most part, it's nice to have the author able to um, speak at least a little bit to what's gonna be useful to them, right, Mm -hmm. because the goal of these workshops is always to make people's work better, and if it's not, then it should be, right? Um, And the writer is often in a good position to know what may or may not be useful, but there still needs to be some room for those surprises that the author might not have considered. So I I tend to run workshops a little differently now, but I valued that approach. I respected it.
0: When you teach writing, do you teach, um, you know, any specific genre? Is it general fiction? day? What kind of workshops do you teach?
1: So it's been a while and I'm sort of on a break. I I, I teach legal writing as my full-time job um, and I'm actually going to be teaching like a scholarship workshop class that's going to work a little differently. I'm excited about that. But um, I occasionally teach fiction writing classes kind of on the side. And I've taught any number of different kinds of classes. I've taught short story classes and multi-genre classes, classes in humor, classes in mystery, that kind of thing. But um, most recently, most of the classes I teach are novel writing classes and they're early stage (laughs) Generative classes. Um, And so we are talking about students who want to write novels who already have an idea and who may or may not have started. And we are generally workshopping early pages from them. And the goal is to keep them moving. And so I'm trying not to run a workshop that would be debilitating in any way, that would keep the students from progressing in their work, right? I mean, a, a badly run workshop can, um, can stymie creativity and it can make people feel like it's not safe to keep going. And so for those classes, I do a lot of early generative work and a lot of interactive work with the writer. Um, and one of the things that I want the writer to see is, um, how people are receiving the early pages of their novel, which are so important to directing where the novel is headed. Mm -hmm. You know, so one of the exercises I start with is, um, you know, that when we, when we read the early pages of, of, a, of, a, of a novel, the class will describe where they think the book is headed so that the author can hear whether the person is reading the beginning of the book they plan to write.
0: Yeah. That makes sense? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Sometimes cool. they are, right? And sometimes they see the very different things than the writer sees. And that right. can either change the direction of the work or the writer needs to change that first chapter to redirect their readers back toward the story they're interested in telling. And interestingly, I'm having exactly the same problem in my own writing right now. Like I wrote (laughs) a first chapter of a book for a new project. And then I wrote maybe like a hundred pages. It was very clear to me almost the whole time that they were wrong. Um, And they were wrong because I had, I had directed the first chapter improperly that I had sent myself down a path that was not actually the path I wanted to be on. And I had to go back and rewrite the first chapter and recalibrate myself to be back on the path of the story.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, frequently too with new writers you have to keep getting rid of those first chapters because that's not where the book starts. Oh yeah, <laughs> you need to know that, but it's not where the book starts. The book starts yeah. 100 pages later, which is always disconcerting, but that's you know, writing your way into the novel. So let's talk oh, yeah. about your creative process a little bit. You know, legal writing, I'm sure there are times where you have to unlearn or unthink about what oh, you're doing there. Um, but, but how do you how do you start a book?
1: Oh, I wish there was an easy answer to that question. Um, I, w- I want to say too, that like, this is going to be a different answer for everyone. And for me, yeah. it's also a different answer with every book. And so I don't view myself as having a clear process that I follow book to book, partly because it's really hard to develop that. And partly because I sort of intentionally derail that process for myself because I like to think that every book contains a new thing for me to learn. And I will often try to quantify what that new thing is going in, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes to my own detriment. Right. So like one thing I tried to do, I'm very, um, I call myself sort of a capri pantser Mm -hmm. in terms of structure where Mm -hmm. I, I like to have a certain sense of where things are going, but I pretty much wing it along the way. Um, And I tried to write a book that was so clearly in mystery um, that I felt like I really needed to understand the plot very well before I started. So I outlined it completely. I wrote like a very, very detailed outline with like chapter summaries and the whole thing. I had the whole story mapped out and I started writing the book and the book was like not alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I am hoping someday I can resuscitate it. But I do think for me, that process of overplotting plotting it, um, it sapped a lot of the joy of discovering things in my own process, and so like whereas that would work beautifully for somebody else, that was a failed experiment for me. I am just not a plotter, right? So to back up, um, I warned you. I was very long winded. <laughs> <You> no, no. <laughs> I, try land, I, I try to land. I to land the plane eventually, but um, so um, I usually start with some sort of idea, um, and I I will have an idea, and it's almost like you know the the pearl in the. The oyster, I've got a little grain of sand and, then I and I worry it and I worry it and I worry it and I worry it. And I take a lot of notes and I think about, you know, what is this idea? What kind of conflict does it lead to? What kind of problem comes from someone having that particular issue? Um, and then I sort of think about where that kind of story might lead and then who would be an interesting person for those things to be happening to. Um, and I'll usually write a very rough, as fast as I can draft where I learn the world of the book and I sort of write out, I call it the plot draft, right? And mm-hmm. it, this is kind of why I'm not a plotter, I think, is because I can't really skip this process of figuring out on the page where it's headed. Mm-hmm. That's really valuable for me. Um, and when I say draft, I mean, that's often like multiple drafts to try to get the narrative down. But um, but that's where I see the shape of the book. I'm very structure-oriented I try to get the shape of the book down. And then in my next iteration, I call it the character draft, right? Is this story happening to the right people? Mm -hmm. Um, Who are the people that it's happening to? Who matters? Who's important? Who do I need to understand better? Who do I need to flesh out? Um, And then I have sort of what I call the reconciliation draft, right, which is Okay, I figured out what the story roughly is. I figure out who it's happening to. Are those things aligning the way they need to? What is it about the story? Because at this point, I think the characters really have to drive. Mm -hmm. What is it about the story that needs to change now that I understand who these people are? And often it will be a very different book by the end than where I started. Although because I'm sort of very structure oriented in my head, I often do get the pieces right, but I don't always understand why. And so figuring out the people helps me understand why those were the right or close to the right pieces. Um, And then that final kind of reconciliation draft is where it all comes together. And I can deepen everything and make things make more sense. And I can go back and see, because all of my stuff is sort of, I I call it mystery or mystery adjacent. It's not exactly crime because I'm dealing with kids who aren't always major criminals in the books that I write, but they are always trying to figure things out and learn things Mm -hmm. from what they're figuring out. And I have to figure out, what it is they're learning from the events, what it is they're learning about themselves, right? What is, what is sort of the character right. knowledge that they're acquiring as they move and grow through the narrative? So those are kind of all the pieces that are happening. So it's like three formal stages with like multiple drafts in each stage. That's how I think I would describe my my macro level process.
0: And do you typically write from uh, multiple points of view, single points of view, first, third, like what, or do you change that with every novel as well? I change it. I, you know, I, I, it's really interesting. I found that um, my first two novels
1: are uh, what we call like in the drawer or in the trunk or under my bed or never going to see the light of day. Um, and both of those were polyphonic third person. So the first one had two main narrators divided into kind of chunks. The second one had any number because I have written like 10,000 drafts of this book that is never going to work the way I want it to. Um, (laughs) but it changed chapter to chapter, many, many voices, many narrators. And when I switched over to YA, um, I started writing in first person, single narrator, first person. And I think, and, and I, I don't mean this as a good thing. I think in my head, I had always felt that my version of first person is very voice driven to the point of being problematic, right? So when I had written short stories in first person, I felt like the voice really took over the story and the story never got its own legs. Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: I think in novels, I I chilled out a little, right? You have a whole book, the voice can't drive a whole book. So you gotta figure out another way for the narrative to move. And I got more comfortable with first person. Um, But um, I am now attempting another adult book, who knows? Um, and then then this other YA book that didn't work. So the YA book that didn't work that was plotty was Polyphonic Third. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why I was struggling, is I hadn't written that way in a long time. And when Mm -hmm. the last time I wrote that way, they were either adult books or books that weren't sure where they lived. Um, and so I need to decide whether that's something I wanna keep when I revisit that book. And the adult book, which I'm also struggling with, is single narrator first person, which I haven't done an adult at all. So it's tough, right? Um, I do think I find first person easier to inhabit and live in Mm -hmm. and stay consistent with. Um, Multiple perspective comes with tremendous challenges in terms of movement of the narrative. Um, and whether you want the ability to see events multiple times from multiple people or whether you want each voice to carry the story in a particular direction. And those are, I think, choices that you need to make before you write because books can get lost and bogged down very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's tough. I think writing trends now also permit things that I have a lot of trouble writing, such as multiple first person, which I think is incredibly difficult. Yeah. Um, Because the amount of work that you have to do to make those voices distinct feeds right into my fears about being overly voicey and letting the voice drive the narrative too much. Mm -hmm. And so it's a skill that other people have that I think I I don't. And so I'm less comfortable in that space.
0: Yeah. Voice is such an important decision to make as a writer and yet we don't always make an active decision. <laughs> you know, yes. Sometimes we'll sort of say, mm-hmm. oh, I'm just, you know, and it's going to be first person. And then you may say to yourself, oh, that would be interesting if it was third person or, mm-hmm. you know, vice versa. And, you know, and heaven help us always all change <laughs> drafts in the middle and then oh, have yes. to change it around. Oh, Definitely. Yeah. Michelle, when you talked about the multi points of view book that's in a draw, do you ever think? I'm going to build the skills. At some point, I'm going to build enough skills to write that book that was, that was too ambitious for where I was as a writer I when I wrote so. it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think about it like
1: that. That one is like, there's so many problems with it, right? It was a, it was a book that was set at a high school and the multiple perspectives at the time included adults. So they were both adult and kid narrators Um, So I had that problem. Right. And, And it was partly because in a good way, I wasn't thinking about market when I wrote it. Right. Right. I was only thinking about the story that I wanted to tell. And I wanted to tell a story set in a high school where both adults and kids were affected by the things going on at the school. And so I wrote that book and I also wanted to write like a slipstream specky book. So in addition to all the other problems that were happening at the school, there were also ghosts. So, I mean, if you think about all the things that you have to be thinking about when you're writing for both adults and kids, right? How do you, how do you write a book that speaks to a broad, uh, you know, depending on who, how you think about audiences, a broad audience, um, that addresses what for me at the time were like kind of local political governmental issues and how the school was run, mm-hmm. but then also these weird slipstreamy issues about, you know, people being dead and having to, it was sort of a murder. So this book was like kind of a murder mystery. It was kind of a ghost story. It was kind of a social critique of stuff that were happening at like a small town high school. And the reality is like, that's too many books in one book, right? Like (laughs) in theory, you could have a book that did all of that, but making all of those things work was for me impossible. It just wasn't possible. Right. So, you know, revision number 27,000 slash two <laughs> was <laughs> the adults out and try to make it YA. Right. Um, and that solves one problem, right. You take out some of the social commentary, you take out the adult humans and then you make it about the kids. Um, but then you still have a murder mystery set in a ghost world and ghost yeah. world. You were talking earlier about rules, right? Like in, I feel like in every novel, you have a certain amount of world building, even if it's realism world building, right? You have to establish the level of reality of the world that you're in. It may look like our world, but not be identical to it. It may be as close as you can get, although we all, I think, need a little flexibility to make that world our own. So you take, you know, a world that is ostensibly realistic, but for the existence of this ghost world on top of it, what are the rules of reality? What are the rules of ghost worlds? Um, how do you make those, not just rules that serve your narrative, but rules that make sense independently, which was something I struggled with tremendously. Right. Um, and yeah, I did not have the skills to do all of those things. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure I still do. Right. I I don't know if that's a book that can ever work. Right. But it, it is interesting to think about it that way and to kind of remind myself of what those challenges were and when I could and couldn't surmount them.
0: Yeah, no, it's challenging. For for listeners, let's um, I let's define a couple of the terms that we've been using. Um, when you talk about slipstream, tell tell us what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, so I, I usually think of that. I mean, the the person who I always look to for that is Kelly Link, who is about to come out with her first novel, but who's a tremendous short story writer who I love. I get real nerdy about the writers, writers. I think she is yeah. a, a phenomenal writer who I think like writer people know her well. I don't know how well like non-writer people know her, but I I adore her work. Um, And she writes work that is just not grounded in realism, but isn't quite fantasy, right? And so Slipstream, I tend to, or Speculative Fiction, I tend to think about it as our world with a couple of significant differences. You know, Mm -hmm. one or two, they don't have to be major, um, but one or two things that make it not quite realism Um, but that have a tremendous ripple effect on the people who exist in that space. And the idea for me would be that that sheds some light on what realism is. It sheds some light on our own reality. And so um, I I think back to that very first workshop class we were talking about where I had a friend who wrote a story that I thought was tremendous. Um, And it was a story ostensibly about um, a boy who discovered that um, his father was dying after being bitten by like a poisonous spider. Um, And in one kind of version of things, his father was kind of turning into Spider-Man and in another version, he was dying of leukemia. Um, And Mm -hmm. when you look at the things that were kind of, that the writer was describing were happening in the dad's body, they look very similar. Right, mm-hmm. um, and so it really makes you think about, okay, so so you take a child whose parent is dying of cancer, what is a way that that child might try to make this situation better for themselves or try to make the world a little more manageable? They might imagine that it's actually playing out in this wholly other way that looks very much like what's happening now. And I found that's I'm not even probably describing it, right. It's been so long since I read it, but I was so moved by this story, yeah. Um, and I think more so than I would have been, by a more straightforward story about a boy whose father was dying of cancer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. You know, it added this whole level of, you know, what that imagination was bringing to the scenario that was going to make it kind of in some ways even harder for the boy to process what was really happening. And that just broke my heart.
0: Yeah. You know, thank you. for. I mean, thank you for that explanation also for helping us all think about what world am I creating? What is what is the reality? Where where are the tropes? What and this is for whatever you're writing, you know? Mm-hmm. And is there something in it that is is additive or is what you would want it to be or is harder or whatever it is um that makes it stand out or helps it be unique? Yeah. yeah. So how you're working on Two novels. How how long's your process? How does this how does this work for you?
1: Are you (laughs) You um... I I wish I had a consistent process. You know, because I teach full time, um, I have a very, very hard time generating work during the semester. Um, back when I was under contract for things and I was going back and forth with an editor, um, I, I had a wonderful editor for my first few all my all my editors have been great. I had one editor for the first three books, and she was fantastic and she totally understood the schedule, you know? And so what we would do is I did all the generative parts over the summer and over winter break. Um, and when I'm generating new stuff, I try to be as flexible with myself as possible. Um, but I, I not den- I tend to do well if I, I get up, I sort of do my preliminary morning breakfast email, you know, wordle, quirtle, all that stuff, you know? <laughs> um, and then I write and I usually can get like if I, if I have all the time in the world, I can do like a morning session and an afternoon session. And I just try to generate as much content as I can. I'm a big overwriter, just like I'm an overtalker. Right. (laughs) And then I go in and edit. Um, but I, I overwrite and I try to give myself a big pile of clay to sculpt. Um, and then I, I could sculpt during the semester. So I could refine, revise, I could take feedback from my editor. I could do some of that during lulls during the semester. Um, but now I'm not under contract and I'm sort of figuring out new projects that are hard and I'm yeah. struggling. It, it, I would say since COVID, where I had had a I, I had a book come out during lockdown, basically, um, November 2020. We were finalizing it that summer. That was awful. Right. It was just yeah. awful. Um, and they always recommend that we have another project going to distract us from that project. And the project at the time that I wanted to be writing was like set at a summer camp. Um, and here we are like in a summer of lockdown and I'm supposed to be writing about like kids playing together at a lake and I couldn't do it. I just couldn't write. Yeah. So then I had to sort of come up with new stuff and that, you know, and, and it, it took such a long time to even just conceptualize things that my brain could handle during that window. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I wrote the sort of failed two thirds of a draft over the period of a couple of years that didn't really work. Mm -hmm. And then I came up with this other kind of weird side adult project that I've started that's complicated in itself. So, you know, I, I used to say I had this process of like writing in the summer and writing over break and work in the morning and then work in the afternoon and research And it's it's a little up in the air right now. You know, It's a, it's a little hard to know. And I'm trying to kind of fight my way back. I'm very yeah. comforted when I hear about not being alone in this, because I will say, I spent too much time on social media during that phase, and a lot of people used that time really well, and I admire them for it, and I envy them for it. but I didn't, and I couldn't. And I still am sort of clawing back to get to where I can write consistently, and I, I hope it helps people to know that they're not alone if they're feeling that way
0: too. Yeah, thank you for your honesty on that. I, you know, balancing writing with a full-time job isn't always possible and is very challenging especially if you have any other kind of life included with that <laughs> I mean, if that's all you do is work it may work it may be fine but if you do anything else or have yeah. any other kind of life um but COVID affected people in different ways and I don't know that we're yet reconciled with with what that's done because um some folks i mean i'm somebody who uh i listen to books now i never did before yep. um and I, I have trouble sitting down and reading i you know mm-hmm. i need to be doing something like taking a walk or doing and so that's one of my changes in writing i wise you know but also thank you for your honesty about the contract um uh, conversation because contracts are deadlines and you know yeah. you make it work when mm-hmm. you don't have a contract and also when you're trying something new it's very hard to motivate yourself to you it know really is. you know instead of going to the museum let me sit home and write mm-hmm. 2000 words you know that's very oh, yeah. challenging yeah
1: Yeah, I have a couple of different accountability groups that I'm trying to use to help motivate me. You know, I'm trying to find ways to create that deadline structure for myself, which is something I just used to be better at than I am Mm -hmm. now. I got a little spoiled letting other people set those deadlines for me. And it's a muscle that I think you have to really exercise and mine has atrophied a bit. So right. I, I have to force myself to do it a little bit, but I also have to remember to be kind to myself in this too, because I can be really hard on myself. And then I, I keep myself from working. Right. Yes. Cause then you get to the whole place where you're like, well, I didn't meet my goal for this week. Why would I even bother next week? Right. And I right. can't do that. I have to say last week was tough. This week will be better. I have to just right. let it go.
0: Where you set goals that aren't possible. You know, I'm going to write a thousand words a day and it's like, you know, how about 250? And then if you write 500, you get a win, you know, or how about a hundred words? I mean, that's what I've started doing much, much smaller goal setting. Cause I, I, I
1: realized that like, and I've, I've talked about this with friends too, and they do this to themselves and it's much easier to help them out of it than it is to help yourself out of it. But I am all about setting like super tiny goals that we can meet and then we win. And then you celebrate the win. Yeah. And it's so easy to be like, well, but it was only a hundred words, whatever, but but you said a hundred and you did a hundred, you win. And you have That's to right. get the happy feeling. You can't constantly be depriving yourself of a feeling of accomplishment and expect that you're going to still want to do the thing that every day that you don't do it the way you want,
0: you make yourself miserable. Right. Right. I also think for folks who teach or taught during COVID, um, I I was teaching uh, an arts administration class then, um, so I had <laughs> a bunch of actors so who were yeah. you know all of a sudden mid semester you don't you can't see each other in person and they're all actors so that they were also freaking out about you know and uh, as we tried to navigate our students through that time I I do think that that took a lot um, and not just on the college level on every level every teacher had a extra burden of your students freaking out and you need to sort of help them not freak out while you were freaking out. Oh, completely.
1: And I also yeah. supervise a team of faculty, most of whom had never taught online. And so okay. the summer before, you know, the summer of lockdown, um, my school hadn't made a decision about what it was going to do in the fall. And so I had to convince them that we needed to learn how to teach online that summer in anticipation of the likelihood that we would be teaching online in the fall. And I, my pitch was, you know, if I'm wrong, you'll just be overprepared. But if I'm right, the rest of the school is going to be behind and I don't want us to be behind. Um, And thankfully they were very receptive, but like that summer that I was supposed to be, you know, like doing promo stuff for my own book and starting a new book and whatever, I was teaching a team of people to teach on Canvas and on Zoom and, you know, like how to flip a class, right? We had talked about for years, this concept of the flipped classroom, a whole separate topic, but we were, you know, we were recording lectures and PowerPoints and we were creating classroom exercises and we were figuring out how to manage Zoom breakout rooms and stuff that's all second nature now, which is great. But at the time I had a faculty of people been teaching 25 years and never been on Zoom, you know, it was not easy yeah um so yes. yeah for a lot of us writing wasn't the answer that summer and then that year it wasn't the answer either and then how do you sort of get back right. you know I don't know about you but like my job never quite recovered from that like the job yeah. itself has changed so much the students have changed their needs have changed there's yeah. so much to consider and there's so much more to do it's hard to get back in a writing space
0: yeah yeah um and make decisions about what to do with, with the what we're going through in your books mm-hmm. and everything else. But, oh, yeah. um, I think that talking about this, acknowledging it is something we're not all doing as, as much as we should and the effect it's had, um, and continue, as you said, it continues to have, I mean, everybody changed and, you know, I, I a hundred years from now, we'll have perspective, but right now we're still in it. So, you know. Well,
1: I want to highlight something that that Sisters in Crime has been doing that has been tremendously helpful for me. Um, in addition to just having a lot of like online content and things that we can you know, that that we could do from home back when we couldn't leave, um, I've found as a reader that um, comfort reading has become incredibly important to me, and revisiting books that I love that have given me that kind of joy that I now want to understand better from a writing perspective. Um, that is like one of the most helpful things that I can do for myself as a writer right now. Um, mm-hmm. And I know you started this writing as a reading as a writer program. Um, and I was lucky enough to participate in the Westing Game version, yeah. which is one of my favorite books of all time. Um, but so helpful to go back to books that I love to be able to talk about them with people who also love them, to meet new people. I met people on that Zoom that like I want to keep in touch with. It was tremendous, who are thinking about books that I love in a way that's totally different from how I thought about them. And I can still learn from them. They still yield content when you press on them. you know. Like um, And that series and doing things like that, I think is so helpful for us as writers. I'm so glad that you started doing that.
0: Well, and I'm going to give credit to Susan Hammerman, who's the library liaison, who is a former librarian, but um, who, who drives that program. The game, and for members, it's in the um, member archives, so you can go uh, back and read it. I didn't read that, uh, you know, at the time. Uh, you know, right. I don't know where I was, or I'm a little bit older, mm-hmm. but it's an older book. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it was a wrong right, yeah. rap. Right. Um but the people who are on that panel love it with such so much. <laughs> joy. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, and and reading it like a writer now, uh it it is a great book to read. Uh mm-hmm. just talk about multiple points of view. But I remember when we were talking, prepping for it, I said, I've never read it, and you said, I envy you that this <laughs> is you're gonna be reading it for the first time because um <laughs> It is something, it's a really wonderful book. <laughs> i so highly recommended to folks. But uh, it also, reading it like a writer, we can, we tend to dismiss some of those books that we loved as kids. And that mm-hmm. one, you shouldn't, you know, she did an amazing job with that.
1: Oh, she's something else. Yeah, she's incredible. Yeah. Ellen I, I wish else. she had lived longer. I would have loved
0: to see what she kept doing. You know, she died yes. very young. Yeah, and- Part of the joy of the um, book that we read was that, you know, her editor had a note in there. So talked about working yes. with her. But we also talked about she was she controlled how the book was laid out. Like, mm-hmm. she, you know, I mean, she she had tremendous vision. She was an illustrator at first. So mm-hmm. I think that that also helps. So, um, yeah, our next reading like a writer will be The Hound of the Baskervilles, which is, uh, you know, Arthur Cangina, be which we all have read at some point, oh, yeah. but you know the folks who are going to be on that panel are also some Victorian, you know, literature scholars and Holmes folks and 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 things like that. So it's going to be. Um, but we should all read, as we were talking about earlier. There are books now that you just read, and then as a writer, you stop and say, "I got to read this again," because mm-hmm. how did she do that? I enjoyed the book, but now I've got to read it again, which is such a gift.
1: Yeah, I'm going to plug one of those, actually, uh, just uh, for the intersection between YA and mystery, because maybe we'll have some people who are interested in that. Um, There's a book called We Were Liars by E. Lockhart that came out several years ago. Um, Huge book in YA. Um, And she, uh, I don't want to reveal too much, but she pulls off a lot of things that I was incredibly impressed at. Um, and I I read the book and I she she did this wonderful job of, of misdirection where I had a very clear sense of where I thought the book was going. And I was really proud of myself for having figured it out so early, right? I was so excited that I had like unlocked the key to like the mystery of this book. Um and when I got to the end, I was wrong. Um and I was wrong in this incredibly satisfying way where I realized that she had sent me down that road on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, that she was on an entirely different road that shocked me when I realized what it was. And I had that feeling of, did she really do this? Did she really pull this off? And I did something I never do, which is I immediately went back and I reread the whole thing, um, to check her work basically. And it was <laughs> flawless. And I have since taught that book. So I've now like kind of diagrammed it out a lot more rigorously, but it is an incredibly well constructed narrative where she does a lot of complicated stuff and it's basically a mystery where the reveal is incredibly satisfying and was not predictable to me. Um, and I think that people who are interested in that kind of intersection of mystery and the YA space, um, they might really love that book, If We Were Great. Liars. or we're Not If We Were Liars, We Were Liars by E. Lockhart.
0: I will put that in the show notes as well because that's a wonderful Absolutely. recommendation. Yeah. Um, and we could obviously talk about books and writing um uh, forever but um I don't want to <laughs> take up more of your time Michelle thank you so much for such a great conversation sure. and for your generosity in um in sharing you know your journey and and challenges and you know giving us things to think about as writers
1: my pleasure it's so fun talking to you thank you
0: so much for having me